Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast, a podcast about people, product, and crypto. Through these open-ended interviews, we try to get an understanding of all the builders and users of the near ecosystem and crypto in general, what brought them to crypto, what they're working on, what their vision for the world is, and I guess try to gain some insights on how more people could follow their journey or collaborate with them. Today with us, we have Ethan Chiasen. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, people pronounce it differently, like all over. I'd just say Chasson, but uh, oh, yeah, well, you, can, you can say. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Chasson. Okay, so we've got Ethan today. I guess that I've come across in a lot of places in the near ecosystem, and that I think he has a really interesting journey. So to give you a really quick overview, and then we'll get Ethan to start unpacking some of those because I'm actually not too familiar. But before we jump in, a quick word from our sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Metapool. Metapool is the first liquid staking solution in NEAR. And you may be wondering, what is liquid staking? Well, with traditional staking, you simply deposit your NEAR on a validator to help secure the network and you receive staking rewards in return, which are about 10% per year at the moment. You think about it, that is pretty great. But there are some limitations. Namely, all the money that you lock for staking, it's just sitting there idle. Not much use to it other than staking. Enter Metapool. When you stake with Metapool, you receive SDNIR in return. SDNIR serves as a receipt that proves to the entire world that you have a certain amount of NIR and corresponding value locked in staking. And it allows you to take that receipt to any of the many projects in the growing DeFi ecosystem and use that value towards DeFi money Legos. So for instance, at the moment, you can issue USD stablecoin through OIN Finance or participate on farming with Ref Finance. Another way to put it may be that liquid staking, it's like Schrodinger's cat. While you stake with Metapool, you are simultaneously staking to help secure and decentralize the network and you have immediate access to all your funds to go participate in the ecosystem. I'm not sure if that was a good example, but I think you get the idea. Staking with Metapool is the easiest and smartest way to stake on the near ecosystem. If you have not checked them out, go to metapool.app. By supporting them, you are supporting us. Thank you. Ethan was the founder of Stake.gg, which was an online... How would you describe it, Ethan? We like to say just um, staking on a team, really. Having a stake in a team and in their future. And, and yeah, there, there's we can get deeper into that, but there's a lot of things that Stake does that a lot of other platforms, even in decentralized space, don't really do. I guess you could just describe it as a decentralized esports prediction market. That's just the easiest way to describe it. Awesome. So something similar to like maybe Augur, but focused specifically on esports. Yes, that, that is the correct wording, prediction markets. What I also find really interesting about Ethan is that it is, to my knowledge, the first DAO-to-DAO -DAO acquisition. So Stake.gg was very successful even from the very early days and was recently acquired by Pulse Markets. And you're currently working with Pulse as well? Yes. So I joined the Pulse team. So it was like a DAO-to-DAO -DAO acquisition. And then I joined the, team, the Pulse team to help lead the Pulse app. 
but also expand on stake and try to like basically make them work together because esports pulse is really focused on everything from politics to sports to crypto markets and stake was really just esports and i think that there's pros and cons to both platforms and so by combining the platforms and un- under one roof we can really like utilize both benefits of each platform to basically deliver the best products to the user and yeah we can get into that i think that's a really interesting topic in and of itself because although everyone wants to say that decentralized platforms are better and they definitely are in many ways but there's also some things that centralized products just do better and so we're trying to really kind of i guess balance how to deliver the best of both worlds to um, the user to create the best user experience. What I find fascinating is that in the traditional startup world, it is not uncommon to see um, acquisitions, especially of like younger companies or smaller companies. And it is often not so much an acquisition like you're buying the product because you want it, or you may not even necessarily be thinking of continuing the service or the product, but it is often seen as a talent acquisition. You're basically buying the team that was running the product. So I'm wondering whether the crypto markets moving so fast and there is such a shortage of talent that if you find somebody that is really passionate and has experience and is doing something that is loosely aligned, it actually makes more sense um, to join forces and then grow that vision together. Yeah. And actually one of my mentors, Peter, he told me something really interesting. There was actually a company that got acquired in the cryptocurrency space. And I'm not too sure if it was acquired by a centralized company or not, but when it was acquired, what was interesting is that there was like a rumor to how much it was acquired for. And it was, it was like next to nothing. And I was like, man, that's really weird because I know this product and a lot of my friends who aren't really crypto centric, they've heard of this product. Why was it acquired for su- such a low amount of money? And he said, the reason you know about the product is because it was acquired. And I think that you could draw parallels to that. I, I think that crypto is really interesting because there's a lot of new things going on. And because of that, centralized companies, other decentralized companies, they really like fresh minds and not just young minds, but young minds that are going outside of the status quo to build different products. Because it's one thing to be a really smart, intelligent person, hardworking, and then work for a centralized company. And it's another thing to start, make your own startup, but it's a whole nother ballgame just to create a startup in this new space like a space that's so new and innovative and no one really knows what's going to happen to it in five years. Like we can all speculate, but we can all say that crypto is going to be the next big thing, but no one really knows. And I think that I think that people really like to see that risk that people take. And it really just tells you about that person's character. And so I, so think, I think that in the future, we're going to see a lot more DAO to DAO acquisitions. We're going to see a lot more of these centralized companies acquiring other companies and decentralized companies acquiring decentralized companies is it's going to be really interesting and the DAO really allows that to happen and it's really cool and really excited to see how like mergers and acquisitions grow in the future and the next you know five to ten years but do you think that the labor market in general is going to change a lot I am very optimistic and a big part of this podcast is to encourage more people to come join us. We want to illuminate the opportunities and the pathways, but I guess that as with everything, 
There may be some downsides. Maybe it is less stable, less predictable, which really goes to the core of what you were saying. At least during these early stages, that lack of stability and that lack of predictability creates a fascinating self-selecting mechanism where you can almost guarantee that the people that are involved in the space now and that are building in the space now have a really, well, high risk tolerance for sure, but also they've got that vision. They've got vision, conviction, they're hustlers. Most of us don't really know what we're doing, but once you determine the general direction you start learning on the go and you start collaborating with people. So yeah, it is really quite fascinating what is happening in the space. Yeah, me included. I, I have some friends who turn down uh, job offers from the centralized space, work in decentralized space. What a lot of people don't understand is I think a lot of people think that you're working for a decentralized project. A lot of them issue tokens. And then a lot of people say, oh, you're going to get like rich. And that's not really true. And, and I think that you really do sacrifice a lot. Like you don't get your dental insurance. You don't get your health insurance. You don't have someone that pays for your travel to work. You don't have someone who pays for your apartment. And so all those things like really add up. And yeah, it's definitely like a risk. You're risking a lot and you're oftentimes building a product for hours and hours, sometimes working more hours than you would at a centralized company. And then at the end of the day, it could just not work out. Whereas if I went work for another company, I would have that job. I would have that salary. And I think that it also is really cool because if I worked at a job at a salary for a salary, maybe I could get away with not putting in my best work because it's just do your job and then that's it. But I think this is true for centralized startups as well. But when you try to start your own company, you really have a lot riding on it. You have your reputation. It, you really have to put in the work to make it work because if it doesn't, then you're out of a job. A lot of people invest a lot of their own money into their projects, a lot of their time. And yeah, it it's definitely speaks to someone's character when they can get into this space and be successful and then even not be successful. There's plenty of people who have failed multiple times in this space and then they get back up, they start something new and then they're successful. I just realized that we've mentioned the word DAO a lot and it would probably be really beneficial if we had like a definition of what a DAO is because I'm aware that they're really gaining popularity in the crypto space. There seems to be common consensus that first we had DeFi summer and then we had NFT summer and that the next summer is going to be DAOs. So I think that it would be really good if we had like a working definition. My background, interestingly enough, is in the law. I was a former lawyer, a recovering lawyer, a traumatized lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and I always draw parallels between a DAO and say an LLC or a traditional corporation. And in a traditional corporation, you have contracts, like pieces of paper that represent agreements between people. And you have the government that passes laws that regulates a bunch of activities for our companies. There's a lot of humans involved in compliance because there's a disconnect between all the requirements and paper and all the actions in the real world. DAO is, as the name suggests, the name stands for um, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations. So basically, it is a bundle of smart contracts or code that has embedded in its functionality very similar roles and uh, features that a traditional company would. So as Ethan has pointed out already, 
there can be a treasury and there can be people appointed to allocate those funds. There can be people that are able to participate in the decision-making. And as DAOs are getting more and more advanced, we're able to see them take some more real actions, quote-unquote. It's still all digital. It is confined to the digital world. But for instance, right now, the Sputnik V2 DAOs have got the ability to make smart contract calls. So basically, you can put forward a proposal that then, if passed, carries out an action on, on a smart contract or deploys a smart contract. So I feel like this is just the beginning. Was that a good explanation, Ethan? Would you like to add something or, or correct me if I'm wrong? I know that I'm coming from a very different place when drawing those comparisons between the the traditional legal and the new metaverse i think that's a great explanation usually when i try to explain it to maybe friends or family i usually just say it's basically a decentralized mini government but i think that your explanation is a lot better but like with anything in the crypto space i think education is one of the hardest things and not everyone's gonna have the same definition and not all DAOs are deployed the same way for example like i know of a nft DAO in solana that calls themselves a DAO, but it actually is not a DAO. But they do try to act um, as close to one as possible. And I think it's really interesting that you're when you were talking about smart contracts, I remember early on, you would hear people like in the Ethereum space, maybe say stuff like, man, couldn't it, wouldn't it be great if governments ran on smart contracts? And so you would stop corruption, you'd be able to track money uh, and things like this. And I think that's really what the DAO is implementing. We're in, we're creating a way to basically hold people accountable and, and also have actual control over the products that we engage with. And I think that's very powerful. And I think that um, it, it's also, you mentioned Sputnik V2. I think that's really cool too, because if I'm not mistaken, they actually have some cool abilities to create what I believe are referred to as like sub DAOs, where you have like a DAO within a DAO. And that way you can, maybe you don't necessarily want to vote on a bunch of technical stuff because maybe you're not really technical, but maybe you want to vote on maybe product side. Okay. Like how does the UI change or which additional products do we offer that aren't necessarily technical? And I think that's really cool too. And I think that I, I agree that the next big wave will probably be DAOs and even NFT DAOs. I know someone who has some really nice NFTs and he was thinking about creating like a DAO where it controls all of his NFTs and acts as fractionalized NFT investing. And so there's a lot of really cool things you can do with a DAO. And yeah, I, I think that was a great explanation. The first thing that I'd like to always clarify, because Web 2.0 people, often called normies in an endearing way, they can be very fast to dismiss things in the Web 3.0 world, the blockchain world. And I guess their assessment is correct in the now, in the sense that it is very early days. And perhaps if you're used to using applications in Web 2.0 that are insanely advanced and fast and they build in machine learning and who knows what else they have, Web 3.0 applications may feel a little bit clunky. So I guess the first clarification is, yes, it is very early. The right way to assess the things that we see now is not at face value with what they are now. It would be wrong to assume that what we have now is what we're going to have forever. DAOs now are all experiments. We're starting to see like mini DAOs, so to speak. 
It could be with NFTs. I've got one for this podcast, actually. There's 15 years in there that in theory, I'm going to find some novel ways to engage the guests and the audience. We're all experimenting. The really cool thing is, as you mentioned, that we're building these tools that anyone can take. Like I said, it would be worth digging a little bit deeper of what do we mean when we say decentralized? I would say that at its core, decentralized in this context means removing the surface of attack or, or removing the risk of an intermediary or, or something along the way going wrong. At the very core of why we have these structures to allow society to organize from the beginning of the day, both LLCs and corporations and now DAOs in the metaverse and going into the digital, at the very core is trust. If people don't trust each other, life is very miserable because we're not able to collaborate in, in, in a large scale. So we keep coming up with devices as advanced as technology allows to enable trust. I can tell you because I grew up in Venezuela, when there are inefficient and corrupt judicial systems, when you don't even bother signing a contract because you know that it is not going to be upheld, when you've got this breakdown of society because the incentives are not aligned, economic growth is very limited. There is no investment. There is no devoting your time to a course because there's no certainty that there's going to be a payout. So I think that it's fascinating to me to see DAOs as that evolution. I always say that when you have new technology and when you have new tools enabled by technology, you have to rethink all problems. And your definition of DAOs as being you know, like an online or decentralized government in the sense that anyone can start one, I think it's 100% correct because in the traditional world, when things are centralized, another way to putting it is hierarchical. You go up the hierarchy and... There is a top to it, and the level of risk increases as you go up that hierarchy. So what happens in a lot of countries is at the very top, the highest court, the military, the government, they're so corrupt that there's no way that you can escape it. Unless you physically remove yourself from that country, so you basically opt into a different jurisdiction, yeah, it just stalls everyone's progress and growth below them. But now I see DAOs as being above that. Because once you remove the need for the local police or the local courts or the local government to step in and mediate a situation or enable commerce to happen, you're unlocking insane amounts of value. Yeah, I think it really allows people's values to be heard. And maybe not, you know, the best analogy, but like here in America, we have a community that people call Amish, but there's different subgroups. And what's really interesting is they've tried very hard to remove themselves from the government's control. And they've not really been able to do it. Like you said, there's a lot of challenges to the whole like government centralized. And I think that a lot of people, they want to say that DAOs are complex, but they're really not that complex. If you look at something um, like just a bill that's coming on Capitol Hill, there's actually a really famous photo that released. It was a bill and it was like, I don't know, like a foot and a half tall stack of papers. And let's be real, who's reading that? I don't trust that my government is actually reading that. I don't trust that my senators uh, and congressmen are actually reading all, you know, 
3,300 pages of this bill. At least they can't really comprehend every single part of it. And like about DAOs is like, they're simple. Everyone has a vote and they just vote on this very clear thing. And that's what's really cool. And I, I, I think at the bottom line, it's like people's values are heard, not just people at the top. But at a centralized company, it's really, you can have every engineer, right, at a centralized company say, okay, no, this isn't the right way to bring our product. But then the CEO is like, okay, no, this is what we're going to do. And so it's really cool that everyone gets to have their own say. And that's, that's like, like the, the biggest, biggest part. And they, their say can't really be censored. They have that vote and that vote can't be taken away from them. That gets into a whole like another talk about the anti-censorship of the blockchain. Like you said, we really have this issue like all throughout human history of uh, not being able to trust people. And so we have developed these systems to combat that. And I think that what's really, really interesting that like the first ones to really like in America, we have checks and balances, but often those checks and balances don't work um, or there's loopholes. Or even if there is a check and a balance, you have to trust that the person checking and balancing is actually going to check and balance. And corruption's a pretty bad thing. And like you said, it's it can just destroy governments. It can destroy businesses and people's lives. And I think that when you put the power in the people, like who are usually the most affected, because let's be real, a, a politician implementing a policy Chances are that policy, like say it's an economic policy, they're still going to get their $120,000 check from the taxpayer, but the people are the ones who really suffer. And so when you put the vote in the hands of the people, it completely changes the dynamic. And you really have to, you, I know in like the blockchain space, we talk about don't trust, verify. And yeah, I definitely agree. But at the same time, DAOs build this layer of trust that because you're held accountable and you have people who are actually actually have a check and a balance against you uh it's a really cool idea and again like you say it's all new and we have problems like any anything decentralized is going to have a trade-off but at least we're trying and what's really cool is that we're trying in a whole new space that you know no one knows where it's going to be in five ten years and yeah like you said like Maybe that maybe DAOs expand into something that we don't even know about yet. Something that no one's ever thought of. There's so much there. I find the Amish situation really interesting because once again, like when you wear your product hat, the world looks different. And in my opinion, and I'm extremely biased, it always looks better. Like we should all be encouraged to see the world through the lenses of product and, and, and design thinking. So if you were to look at it in the traditional way, the normal way, the, the mediocre, not encouraged to think critically way, you would label this group with its salient features and what they're doing now, and then you would attach a value to it. You would dismiss them or whatever. You push them aside. And I think that is probably what is leading them to, to just not voting. And it's probably not an optimal outcome for anyone. For whatever reason, and we don't have to use them as a specific example, because I think that the right. principle would apply to any group of people. What I believe is that when you look at it through product lenses, then you start to deconstruct why is it that they prefer to have their own schools than to use public schools. And by trying to uh, tease apart the problem through the lenses of that particular group, you may start to uncover issues in public schools. 
and be like, okay, there may be a different set of values, a different emphasis in education. Maybe different groups are optimizing towards educating different types of children. Some may be more maths inclined, some more spiritual, whatever the case may be. I think that getting a deeper understanding of what shapes people's worldviews and decisions should be encouraged. We should always come at it with an open mind, not to make a judgment, but just to try to understand how we can cater for those groups better. We come at it with a hypothesis And if you're looking at society as a whole, the hypothesis would be, look, we should be able to create a system of governance that is able to be, that represents everyone or that enables everyone to have a say and it is fair. And even if you come to the conclusion that, okay, run your own school, that's fine, then have the right structure so that you're not unfairly burdened financially or remunerated unfairly for, for the other groups. And the, I guess that this all leads to the same, it's the same thing of when we get new technology, we have to reassess the way that we do things. Like I've also seen that image of the 2,700 page legislation with all sorts of things in there, completely unrelated to the aim of the legislation. No human has the capacity to read 2,700 pages in, in the very short time frame allocated to passing the law and it must pass with urgency. And I think that it's a good example of, look, most voters would look at that scenario and be like, look, this is not optimal. This is really not optimal. I don't even know if it is optimal or if it is fair or unnecessary or not, because I haven't read the law. You're not giving me time to read the law to know if my elected official should support the law and they haven't read the law. Like, who is writing these laws? When you draw the parallel with the Dow you start to see how we change the technology in a way where by making it on-chain and having a voting window and having many proposals that can be voted by separately, you suddenly enable a completely different system. And once again, like if I try to deconstruct, why would they have to put it all in one bundle? Because the system is so inefficient that they're only going to be in the one room to vote once, and then they're all going to go to the holiday homes and forget about it. But with DAOs, you could be in your holiday home and you vote over a seven-day period. It's asynchronous. You don't have to be all there at the same time. Everyone can read about it. Um, You can discuss it publicly. So I think that it is certainly leading us towards progress. And, of course, again, with all things, like we could be going down that road to something better and at any point the road can become bumpy or can diverge to something that isn't too great and i won't use a terminator movie reference that might be a good one and so we definitely should not just give dows all the credit because again centralized products and organizations and such can definitely do some things better. One example I believe is like maybe something like the difference between Apple and like a Linux distro. All right. Cause you have maybe at like Apple, maybe you would, you'd make the argument like, no, like one guy like Steve Jobs having all this say and all this power over the product and like where the product goes, maybe that's not the best thing, but we've already seen that it led to a whole new challenge to Microsoft and such. And so when you have maybe something like a Linux, I use this example a lot, by the way, like when you have something like Linux, we have a lot of, it's almost, it's decentralized in that aspect is that it's like open source. 
usually have like maybe a foundation that allocates funds to build out like Linux distros and keep them going. But what's a Linux market share right now? Like consumer I'm... PCs, like 3%. And it might be a little bit higher because Windows added subsystem for Linux. But even then, let's be real, like my mom isn't going to use Linux. And even if there was a Linux laptop, she probably like when it buy it. And I don't know a single gamer who would want to use Linux because you can't run games on Linux. And of course, maybe you can download an app that will allow you to, but it's not optimal. And so I think that there definitely are some trade-offs too, like the whole de- decentralized aspect. Maybe seven days isn't enough time to vote. Maybe Maybe 51% vote actually isn't a good thing. Maybe the majority is wrong, but I think that at least we're trying to build something different that kind of doesn't have like so much corruption and actually puts power into people's hands. I guess I would rather build a system that puts the power in the hands of the people and then allow the people to screw up and learn that lesson than to put the power in the hands of a politician and have the politician screw up And I know this might be a little bit political. You can definitely draw a lot of parallels between politics and crypto. And again, it's these decentralized products aren't always better at everything. But I think that the things that it tries to do better, it definitely does better than decentralized products. And so we have a lot of ways to grow in that regard. But again, at least we're trying. Um, and it's so early that it's almost unfair to like kind of <laughs> bash things that are like super early. New ideas change and grow. And so super excited about to see how it's going to grow in the future. I think that the Steve Jobs example is interesting because I would argue that he wasn't always that strong leader that would have undermined what would be perceived as decentralized. I guess the opposite would be his company, his kingdom, he's the big boss. He was actually kicked out of Apple for trying to be that. So you can see how in the traditional world, the board of directors was able to remove him and the board of directors was answering to shareholders. We know how that story ends. Eventually he comes back And he was able to prove that his vision and his leadership was actually what was required. But I find fascinating that it is a cycle of, it was actually very patchy at first. He basically gave an opportunity to the board and the company to fail at what they were doing. Then they bring him back. And it is his series of successes, which I guess grants him more and more power. And you may say the same thing about Elon Musk. He's running what, like seven, nine companies It is his past successes and the way that he operates that gained the trust of people around him. He is not going out there and forcing people to give him money. It's all private investments. People choose to give him money for whatever his vision is or his what they believe to be his ability to execute. Likewise, he's not out there forcing people to work for him. You know, he's able to attract the best talent because of what his companies stand for. So I do think it's interesting how it's always a, to me, it always comes down to choice and competition. Do people have a choice of where they want to spend their time, where they want to spend their waking hours, where they want to, I guess, spend their money and also generate an income? And is it possible to compete if the choices available are not satisfactory? 
you can see how, depending on the industry that you look at, some industries are more protected than not by regulation. Some industries have a higher cost of entry. But in general, even if you look at the industries that are protected by regulation, you always end up in the same place. The, the bottleneck, the buck stops with the politicians. It is very hard to compete with politicians. It all comes down to crypto. Crypto is inherently political. If you've been in crypto for long enough, that no one that has built what we have now got in to make money. These people were probably eating ramen for years, wearing the same clothes on a basement. The stereotype is true. They may have made money later on, and to be honest, I think they earned it. When you start building decentralized systems that cannot be corrupted by humans, that cannot be taken over by dark interests, that you have an open ledger where you can see all the transactions and enable you to trust but verify these people are clearly making a political statement. The very first block of Bitcoin has embedded the front page of the Times. Is it the Times? One of the newspapers in the UK that is the European Central Bank. I'll add it to the show notes because I want to give this all the credit it deserves. He embedded in the first block of Bitcoin, Chancellor about to bail banks again for a huge amount of money. This is 2008. How much has changed? Nothing. We as humans and the very small group of people in central banks that continue to print money have only gotten worse. What is different is that up until now, crypto has been political, but we're not playing the politics game. We're not out there with a, whatever, at a protest with a banner or trying to run for office. Up until now, we said, we have tools and we believe we can do things better. We're going to go and code a solution and then show the world and we're going to make what existed before irrelevant. And it's a long journey, and there's a lot of fun along the way. But I think that people may be underestimating the power of shit coins and NFTs. These are all gateway drugs. These are all ways to get people to experience the tools, to test them, to join us as contributors to improve them. The big goal is we believe we can do better. We can have better ways of structuring Groups of people, small, large, corporate, government. We believe that we can have better economic models and systems. We believe we can do better. We're still building it. It's a, it's an experiment, but it is certainly political, if you were to put it, that label. Definitely. How was that rant? <laughs> it was good. At the end of the day, we're all like working towards the same thing, which is basically bringing decentralization to the world. It started out with decentralizing money, like with Bitcoin, and creating like censorship-resistant uh, global payments. That's really what the whole vision was. And now we're growing into, okay, payments aren't really enough because that's not the only problem plaguing the world. What's really plaguing the world really is the censorship, the corruption, and money is just like one of the, like, the, the one of the things that kind of like one of the small things, I guess it's big, right? Because we have, for example, in America, we have the Fed just printing endless amounts of money. And every day, your dollar is basically worth less and less. Or at least over time, it's going to become less less useful, less buying power. That was like the main thing that kind of drew me in. My dad was like a coin collector. And I would always see these old bills that like don't exist anymore. And then you start getting down the rabbit hole. Oh, okay, so like, how is money created today? And then you started learning about the Fed and all these things. That's how I started. But then you slowly start to 
go down this rabbit hole where okay, I don't even I'm not even really sending crypto payments anymore. Like I'm spending more of my time like minting NFTs or taking part in DAOs, voting on things, creating cool products. And I think that's really cool because we're growing and we're going away from just this financial mindset and more towards the okay, like how can we just change the world in general? It's going to be through maybe some of these financial instruments. But like you said, like we're, you mentioned like normies, right? Like I don't really have many normie friends who are paying for things in crypto. They're not. They want to maybe do yield farming or they want to get in, they want to start minting NFTs. They're starting to get into blockchain games and things like that. I think that's really cool because we started off as like this whole kind of focused on money. And then really money is almost like it's taking a back seat to the overall vision okay let's decentralize the world and give power to the people i'm eternally fascinated that crypto is a set of tools enabling tools for people to experiment but it is not a monolith or a cohesive group of people at all and i think you've hinted at it's actually quite lively debates between people from different blockchains which can be inspired by different uh, philosophies or ideologies or even by different technical stacks there's many different uh, consensus algorithms out there and whatnot what i find fascinating is that we really do have the entire spectrum like we have the very hardcore libertarian right and we also have very hardcore lefty basically communism has been replaced by community and they honestly believe that through tokens and on-chain governance and whatnot they can create something that would have been the ideal and it failed back in the day because the government was centralized so they're trying through different means i'm just sitting back and observing and learning as much as possible i'm contributing where i can because the early experiments are very telling. And once again, I, I see everything through product lenses, through post-mortems, through how can these inform the next stage. When we have airdrops, which we try to have a fair distribution and have the community own the protocol, I think that the projects that have followed, most people sell immediately. And in hindsight, they sold cheap. And then people that were in the know bought cheap and the protocol is controlled anyway by a handful of people. Now even corporations and venture capitalists. So it is really no different from the traditional world of owning shares. And, and it comes down to you always have groups of people that need to be trusted. They need to have a cohesive way of working together and that they're going to steer projects in one way or another. Whether these people are organized through a VC firm or they're organized through a DAO, we're starting to see a bit of both. And I guess that it comes down to competition. I don't think it is wrong to have a group of people leading a project, but I think it is exciting that crypto enables us to have, I'd say, unrestrained competition with some limits it is possible to fork a project. You could have been an active contributor to a project. You don't like the direction that it is going and the leadership and whoever gains um, influence and control, and you can fork and take a different direction. I think that's exciting. I'm always very wary 
when we say things like give power or control to the people. Not because it is not a worthy and humble aim, but because it's been so used and overused by politicians who, yeah, it it is populist. It is convincing someone that by giving power to them, (laughs) you're giving power to the people. Who, Who are the people? Right. We don't have any faces to these people. How do you define their interests? How do we and know all, if they're benefiting, if, if they're right. being, uh, something is to their detriment? Like, I do think that smaller groups with better governance would probably work better, at least initially, while we'll, we we'll work these things out. Yeah, actually, um, Plato, when he wrote about democracy, it was supposed to be satirical. A lot of people don't understand that, but when he wrote, um, his like thesis about democracy it was supposed to be like okay this is why we shouldn't have it and then you know, people picked it up and it was like no this is why we should have it and then they implemented it and i think that's a good point it's who are these people what are their values and are they correct because i agree that it's definitely moral and i think that that's why a lot of people have used it to gain power like i want to give you all the power you and then they vote for you, and then all of a sudden, well, okay, like, now you're, like, the monolith. You're the Leviathan, and you're going to make all, really, you're going to make all the decisions. And even if, I heard something recently, I'm not too sure who said this, but basically they said something along the lines of democracy is just control by the 51%. And yeah, it's really interesting, and I think that that's kind of What's interesting about DAOs, especially like these sub and mini DAOs, where where like really it's moral to say that someone should just vote on, let's say, how to implement some protocol. But are the people voting? Do they actually know what they're voting for? And I want to say that just let them vote, right? Because all votes matter. But at the same time, what if they just vote? What if 51% of the people just vote the most obviously wrong way? Because 51% of the people aren't always going to be as educated as maybe the 10%. And this gets into like deeper politics about elitism and stuff like that. Like maybe should the elite be the only ones to vote? But I think that, again, there's always trade-offs. And yeah, I mean, it comes down to the... I think that the problem is well understood because it's a problem that we've always had. And we've got the quintessential question, what is the role of government and even systems of governance? The United States is a federation. Um, There are powers that are reserved to the states, there are powers that are reserved to the federal government. And the two don't mix. Australia has a similar structure. I'll give you a specific example. In Australia, interestingly enough, individual states no longer have the power to tax you. So in Australia, we only have federal taxation the federal government distributes money to the states. Don't ask me what the reasoning was at the time, but now to me, it seems like it's a lot more simple and easy to understand. I guess it's just a closer relationship between the federal government here and the states. In the United States, each state has state taxation, even city taxation, and then there's federal taxation. So the result is you can have vastly different tax rates depending on where you live. And uh, it's also an interesting model, like different tiers of government or power have different uh, powers. Overall, I'm on the libertarian camp. I think that the role of the government should be limited to what is extremely necessary. So for instance, we create corporations, law, regulations, 
where you basically try to avoid what would be blatantly illegal, but you're not giving companies guidelines on what they have to build. You tell them what they cannot build. Don't put arsenic in the products or don't build something that is going to, we call it merchantable quality. It's not going to break down the first time that you use it. But we didn't go out there and tell Apple, yeah, by law, on your next iPhone, make the screen bigger. We don't do that. We never, we should never try to tell people what to do in a way that could impair their creativity or that could go against their personal interests. And COVID has been really frightening because I understand that it is in the context of a pandemic, which technically affects everyone, but the speed and the scope that some governments have taken this to control every single aspect of people's lives is insane to me. Like I am not exaggerating right now, the restrictions in my city, in Melbourne, in Australia, I am not allowed to leave my house for more than two hours a day and only for a government approved reason. It's very interesting and, and very concerning because I see people around me and this desire for government to now micromanage everything for a desired aim that they choose is worthy is starting to spread. And now you're starting to see, yeah, don't let citizens back into the country. You know, expats, they left, don't let them in. That is literally against human rights. You cannot strip someone of the citizenship. You cannot restrict movement of people. There's just so many examples. It's very interesting that we're retesting the boundaries and the role of government and that some people have forgotten what the major downsides and the dark paths that that things can take. But I'm also optimistic that crypto enables us to have those competing alternatives. And I guess the the long rant was a way to say, I do love that the problem is well understood. And I guess from time to time, we're prompted in the real world to reassess why we do things that we do and the value systems that we have. But in crypto, now we have the ability to actually have like tiny ecosystems where we can experiment. So for instance, going back to uh, Sputnik V2, shout out to the Sputnik team. There will be different modes of voting. So for instance, it may not be just one-to-one. You may be able to do, what would you call it, volume-weighted voting. So whoever has more tokens, the vote carry more weight. And many other different formats. I personally think some of that would make sense especially given the context, like hypothetically, say say you've been contributing heavily to a project and you own whatever, 10 million tokens. And you have the same vote as somebody who bought it off Uniswap and has 10 tokens. Your interests, your knowledge of the issue, it's just not going to be the same. To be fair, that can actually go both ways because what if I was someone who I don't really have that much money and I have been contributing to this project and maybe I got like a thousand, two thousand tokens and then someone comes along and then buys a hundred thousand tokens on Uniswap. And so should their vote be worth more? And so I guess you can make play the devil's advocate like either way, right? You can make the argument either way. I'm not too sure which one would be. But in that case... The, you're looking at the fairness from the point of view of who is best positioned to decide the direction. And my gut response would be, if you've been working on the project, you may have more information. And assuming that your ongoing employment is also tied to that project, you don't want the project to fail. Or right. Presumably, if you're the one that has to carry out the job, <laughs> you would also have a strong um, interest there. But I guess it, 
assuming that either party takes the wrong decision and they had more voting power, I think that the next tier of free market kicking in kind of thing should shape things. Like, for instance, if you buy a lot of coins to steer a vote in a way that goes against the core of the product, it's going to cost you a lot of money because presumably the the holdings um, that you now have that you use to vote are going to go down in value. And it may even be so that you alienate the contributors to the project, which goes back to the competition that I mentioned before. If you're a core contributor and you're suddenly getting manipulated or screwed by somebody that came in with money, you can leave. It is much harder to replace the brains than to replace the money. So it's a messy world, but I do think that Mm -hmm. at least it enables these new fluid mechanisms where it is a complex adaptive system. There's many variables all interlinked. Yeah, and to play this the devil advocate one more time, there's actually, I don't know if you've seen any of the Batman movies, but in the Batman The Dark Knight, there's a scene, and spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it, but at at this point, it's so old that if you haven't seen it, that's on you, but... There's actually a scene in the movie where the Joker and his crew, they rob a bank and they have all this money piled up. And then the Joker, he's supposed to split it with one of his henchmen or whatever. And he throws gasoline all over the fire. And then he takes some money and he just burns like half of it. And then later on, it cuts to a scene for Batman's butler. And he basically says, some people... They just, they can't be bought. They just want to watch the world burn. This was actually an argument with Bitcoin mining, where you mentioned something about basically this person buys these tokens and then they're like incentivized not to vote in a way that would basically make their holdings go to zero. But again, to play the devil's advocate, some people, especially in this space, right? If you bought Ethereum or any other coin at a really low price, you have hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever it is what is it to spend fifty hundred thousand dollars to basically just destroy a project you don't like and even a competitor i can buy a token if i was rich enough i can buy a token for a competitor vote buy up all the votes uh vote in a way that destroys that project and then now where's everyone go oh yeah to my project And, and i don't know it's hard to say and i think that you're right like these are dynamic systems that we have to adapt to and so there's always, like I've said this whole talk, there's always downsides and there's always going to be problems that can arise. But like you said, I think that allowing these problems to arise is actually a really great um, learning opportunity for this space. And again, we're so early that these things are going to happen. And when it happens, hopefully people learn from them and then say, okay, maybe we should implement implement a different way. Maybe we... Maybe the voting rights are actually based on the time you've held the tokens plus the token amount and then run some algorithm there. And then you get a score. So someone who has a lot of tokens but just bought them yesterday might not have the same voting power as someone who has 10% of those tokens but have also held from like the beginning. And again, there's always, I could play the devil advocate for any position here, but I agree that. It does require you to take every side of the deal to get a proper assessment of the deals. I guess I'm my only comment to that, and I do have other things I'd like to talk about. So we'll move on from our freedom podcast. The only thing I would add is it is perfectly possible to buy something with the explicit aim of destroying it or, or taking it over in, in a way that would seem malicious or detrimental by the existing team. My question is, how many times can you do that? Because 
if I've got a project and it's going well and you buy me out, <laughs> now I've got cash and I know that the project was working well, you bought it out because you didn't like it, I'll just start it again, start a new right. one. So I guess, it, once again, th- th- there's many tiers of incentives. I'm idealistic and cynical and sometimes pessimistic depending on the weather. I'd like to think that if people are, once again, free to choose and to compete, the optimal scenario always wins. I think in the traditional world, we've had hostile takeovers where people do just that. They buy just enough shares to replace the board of directors, to change the course of the company. So it's not necessarily new. I just think that we do have much more flexibility now to be able to compete. Even the go-to market, we, we all have forums now and Twitter and this podcast, which I'll try to get some some sponsors for the next few episodes to see how that goes. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Now, I always try to deconstruct the people, I guess specifically the person that I'm talking to, because I think that for the first hour of the podcast, we've done an excellent job at mapping out what are those trends in the crypto space? What are some of the opportunities? What are some of the people or the groups that are involved or, or how they are involved? So I guess while I have you on the line, I would really like to dive a little bit deeper into you. And obviously it's a conversation, so you'll get to learn about me as well. But I'd like to see how all the things that we've discussed really apply to you as a person. I don't think we discussed this at the beginning of the call before we started recording, but I'd love to know where are you based? Where have you grown up? Where where are you now? Yeah, to be fair, my my story isn't that interesting. And we all have our own story. But I, I think that first off, I'm based in Louisiana. I'm based in a um, relatively small town here, not New Orleans or Baton Rouge. And it's really interesting because I don't really know anyone else here, anyone who is building or actually like deeply involved in the space. And anyone who I do meet in Louisiana... Um, if I ever hear anything about crypto, it's usually someone asking me, Hey, like Ethan, what do I buy? And I shy away from those conversations because I've done it in the past. I was like, Hey, like you should buy this coin and maybe they make money. But then what happens if someone asks me like, Hey, like, should I buy this crypto? And then I tell them no. And then it pumps. It doesn't matter if the technicals or the fundamentals for the project long-term are good. It, it still pumped 10,000%. So now they're mad at me. <laughs> so I like shy away from that. But it's interesting because I'm not based in the Bay Area. Like I'm not based in New York or even other, other big tier cities that have a nice tech scene, especially not like decentralized tech or economies, like basically like oil and seafood and stuff like that. I actually got lucky. And I think that the power of the internet really helped here to where I was able to meet people online who wanted to be my acquaintance and help me and mentor me. And Peter is one of those people and Jasper and the Flux team. And oddly enough, I actually didn't really know what Near was until I approached Peter showing him a stake. And at that time, stake was actually just a centralized product and it used Bitcoin for payments. And I quickly noticed, okay, like this might not work because the Bitcoin payments are slow and expensive. And some of these games, like these esports matches, they only last 20 to 50 minutes, sometimes a little bit over an hour. So I approached him and he basically showed me 
pulse and I was like, uh, flux. And he was like, yeah, man, this is the solution to all my problems because I'm not really technical. I'm kind of like you. I have this basic flat understanding of JavaScript and I do a lot of HTML and CSS work. I like to do front end and UI and stuff. I'm not writing Rust smart contracts. And as a solo founder, it was really hard for me to do everything at once. I was juggling building a platform, trying to find people who would invest in the platform, doing the UI. There's a lot that go in that went into it. And thankfully, Peter showed me Flux, and he was like, "Hey, you can just do a plug and play SDK, and you can." bootstrap this project really quickly and that was like really cool and then he showed me near and then i made my first wallet and i was just like mind blown that like with the whole wallet creation system i thought it was really amazing that you can just create one using your phone because i think that what a lot of crypto people don't get is that and again this kind of harps back to the whole linux thing it's like there's a certain point where someone just not going to use your product because even if it's not too hard, they'll perceive it as being too hard. So for example, like a 12 word phrase, that's not really hard, but not that many people who necessarily want to like write down like a 12 word phrase and then maybe they lose it. And so someone like my mom or like my sister, if they were ever going to create an account, they would want to like just use their email or use their phone number. And I think that's really cool. And then also like actually early on, I tried to build this product and what the product basically was, it was like basically a centralized hot wallet. And how it worked is you would log in with your telegram and it would account using auth. And then it would create a Bitcoin and like Litecoin wallet for you. I think Ethereum too. And the point of it was that you have these public keys and the public keys are like these long, complicated strings. And if you told me to tell you my own public key, I don't even know it. I just know that it starts with an E or something. And so now I, I looking at near, I thought it was really cool that you can have this kind of what is essentially ENS, but just built in right out the box. Because if my mom, let's say I'm asleep, like I'm across the country And my mom wants to send me like $100 because I'm broke and I need to like get a taxi or something. Now she has to wait until I wake up to send her my public key if she doesn't have it saved somewhere. And with Nier, it's like, oh yeah, just send it to ethanchasson.nier. And I think that was one of the really big draws to me with Nier. And I was actually talking to someone, he does research for a large crypto exchange and I was asking him about his opinions on like other projects and Near. And he's like, Near is really cool because it's the closest thing to Web 2. And what a lot of crypto people don't understand is that they want Web 3 to happen today, right? Today. But the problem is that 99% of the people out there just don't really have the want, need, desire, or knowledge to actually just hop into Web3, right? Not everyone is like, wants to create a MetaMask wallet and learn all these new systems. Even if, again, even if they're easy, right? Maybe they're easy to you. They can be perceived as difficult. And yeah, I think that Near really helps bridge the whole, I guess, Web2 and Web3 space where you have this user interface that's really no different from like maybe Google sign-in or like a PayPal button, but then it has those aspects of Web3 
And the best part about it is that it's just super cheap transactions. That was actually really important when building Stake. And again, I know that I'm going off course about who I am, but um, just like get into that again, my story is not that interesting, but I think that I mentioned this previously, my dad collects coins and currencies and stuff like that. And I used to collect comic books a lot. And really early on, I realized that money changes throughout like time. The Chinese used to have these long, big pieces of paper that were basically like banknotes. And then America had something like that. And America went through something called the free banking era, where basically every private bank was making their own currency. And it was a really bad time because basically no one could tell what was counterfeit and what was real. And one city or one bank wouldn't accept the note from your other bank. I've always found that whole like aspect of money changing really interesting and then you combine that with my collecting i eventually went down this rabbit hole and i was like okay this is really interesting because i heard about bitcoin maybe in 2012 and then i'd shill it to like everyone i think i was like what how old like 14 or 15 and i couldn't buy on an exchange so like if i ever wanted to buy crypto i'd have to find someone who's like older to maybe buy it and then send it to me give them cash or something <laughs> this was like really like years 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 Nothing. ago and yeah i mean my story isn't that interesting but i think that overall i think that the main reason that i'm in this space is i guess because i think that there's a lot of problems with finance but i also think there's just as many problems with just how the world is like functioning because it started off as maybe being more about finance and the government not being able to like stop my payments for what i want to buy or something like that and then now it's becoming more of like what we've been talking about where i'm really into crypto because it just changes the way we interact with each other and even with NFTs, it's been great. I used to be a bear on NFTs. And I won't say I'm a bull right now because I think that there's a lot of projects that are just outright money grabs and scams. But one of the things that really changed my mind on NFTs was near punks. When I first got my first near punk, I just felt like I was part of a community. Like, I don't even care about selling them. I just want, you almost feel like you find a friend somewhere across the world who you might not have that much in common with and you might not never meet each other, but there's a community that you're building. And I think that's the most important thing to me right now. Mate, there is so much there. I think we need to do shorter sentences so I can add my, my, my thoughts <laughs> and my feedback before I forget. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> yeah, it, it took me a really long time to get to my point. I guess it's because I don't really think that highly of my story. The too long don't read is that there's not many people where I'm from and crypto has allowed me to connect with people like more like-minded. And then of course, my opinions on crypto are definitely different than they used to be. Like back in the day, I used to, I wouldn't even touch. In fact, I won't say like my whole holdings, but I'll tell you right now that basically I've never touched another non-big crypto except for like maybe two i never involved myself in any ico i was totally against anything related to an ico i remember i went to a conference i'm not gonna say the coin but it was in san francisco and there was just the whole hallway was filled with icos and i danger I, I zone was, yeah <laughs> and 
One of the best advice that I got back in the day and that has literally shaped my career and I would like to pass on to all our, our, all of our three listeners <laughs> <laughs> is that crypto is entirely open. If you find a project that you like, you can go to the Telegram channels, to the Discord servers, to the governance forum, to the Medium posts. Like it is a very open and welcoming community and you can start engaging and you can explore your curiosity, learn from others. And yeah, it's amazing how many opportunities um, come out of that. Now, where I wanted to start is, this podcast is called The Wild User Interviews for a reason. Wild because we don't really have a structure for the conversation. Although I guess that very broadly, we just want to understand where do the top performers that we have now in the near ecosystem or th people doing things that are interesting and, and I respect, Where do they come from and how do we get more more like them? So I love that you start by saying that your story is unremarkable because truth be told, everyone's story on this podcast should be unremarkable to the extent that it is everyday people that are getting involved in crypto and it is the experiences of everyday people that haven't been born into success or that haven't found striking success We want people with hardships. We want people with different experiences. We want people that what they're doing may only be meaningful to them, but then their contribution obviously adds to a broader pool of value and talent. I personally think that you're definitely downselling yourself. But if I had to, I guess, tease out the core um, elements from your journey, which I think would be common to a lot of people, the first one is that you reject being driven by price or hype or FOMO. And from what you mentioned, that comes from the people around you in Louisiana. You're driven more by product or by mission as opposed to just like price and money. But also there's the element of the gateway drug. As I mentioned that you came to crypto for one reason, which may have been say DeFi or money initially. And as you get to know the technology, your mind starts to expand with possibility. And this was exactly my experience. The more that I understand about what technology can do, the more that my ideas and my possibility and my optimism grows. And I guess that is why I am with Nier now, because not only am I getting a much better understanding of what the technology can do, but Nier brings in the scalability layer. Like now that I can understand how many people can be using it and how accessible and cheap it is, and in particular, how good the user experience can be. That really blew my mind. Like my mission right now is how can we get the best product people, the best designers, the best creative problem solvers, anyone with an idea that is looking for a home where they can execute, how can we amplify people's message? Like, like your experience, I think it's fascinating. I didn't know that you had a UI background. I'm really intrigued to learn how you connected with Peter and how did he become your mentor? How does a mentorship relationship arise? Yeah, so I actually met Peter through a mutual friend of ours, or I guess a mutual acquaintance. I, I actually sent this user stake on LinkedIn. Like I was like, hey, look what I'm building. Maybe it's interest, like, interesting to you because like, he was in gaming or whatever. And he's like, hey, like, 
you should definitely talk to my friend Peter. And so he connected us or whatever. And then Peter sent me a link and we got on like a Google Meet. And to be honest, like almost everything he was saying was like going over my head because I'd actually not known too much about oracles. And as a non-technical person, it was, again, it was mostly going over my head, but the basic premise was like, hey, look, we have this SDK, really small amount of code. Just put this into your project and now you're up and running. And it was perfect for me because I didn't, I had no idea how to even get started making this product that I always wanted to be decentralized, decentralized. I thought that it would be so hard for me as a non-technical solo founder to be able to do it, but I was able to do it. I learned a lot from Peter. I learned a lot from Jasper and Franklin and everyone else on the uh, Flux team. Like, you, I, I think Franklin specifically gave me so much. I probably learned more from interacting with Franklin through Telegram, sending him like code snippets and being like, hey, what am I doing wrong here than I ever learned during any of my time at computer science in college, which I dropped out of to get involved in crypto. I realized very quickly, like I never really knew what I wanted to do. And I was like, okay, maybe I can try to get a job for a company building software or something. And then I quickly realized that wouldn't really make me happy. And me and uh, Peter had a lot of talks about this because Peter had like, a similar story and he's really successful and has guided me in the right directions. I got a job offer actually from a centralized company. It almost seemed too good to turn down, but talked to Peter and he told me, if you really want to build a name for yourself in this space, you really got to commit and you got to realize what you want to do in life. Do you want to work for like the man or whatever, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but, or do you want to forge your own path? And that's really what I wanted to do. And so I owe like a lot of my success in this space to Peter, whether it's helping me connect with VCs who by the way, most, most just don't call you back. That's just, the, that's the dirty secret, right? Like a lot of people, they might really like your product, but, and they might actually really like you, but it might just not be the good fit for them. And anyway, he and the rest of the Flux team really helped me like learn so much. Like the, the first person to actually really get me to understand what an AMM was and what, how it was actually functioning was uh, Jasper. I one time got in a call and I asked him like, hey, can you like maybe explain it a little bit better? Because all these explanations on get online aren't that great. He took his laptop, he went to a whiteboard and he just started teaching me. And it was really great to have wow. people like that. And, and Franklin, right? Like Franklin, he doesn't work for me. And he took time out of his day to say, hey, look, this is what you're doing wrong. And there's is by the way, again, you know how like you say you have a low, like a ba most basic level understanding of Python. Same thing with me at the time. And I was like, what am I doing wrong? And it was just like so obvious. And he could have just said, figure it out on your own. Or I don't know how you don't understand this, but he didn't. He was like, look, this is what you have to do. This is why you have to do it. And their whole team like just really helps me out. And that's what's really cool about crypto is that it it is a team effort. Like they have that in centralized companies as well. But it's just really cool because everyone wants you to succeed, especially when your incentives are aligned. And so we all want to build prediction markets that are going to eat the world. And it's really great that we're able to help each other.
even if there isn't necessarily like a financial incentive for helping someone or, or maybe at a centralized company, the reason you help someone is because they're actually part of your team. Like you both get paid by the same company. But in crypto, because we're all like focusing on this one end goal, you're inclined to help that other person. And yeah. because the, the more products you can build that change the world, the, the better. And yeah, they've been big help to me. And yeah. like uh-huh. even from the business side, Natish and everyone, it's just been really cool working with all of them. What a funny story, actually. When I was really active on Twitter and the different platforms around March, April, Peter reached out to me. He slid into my DMs and he's, hey, what is your day job? We should get on a phone call. And I was like, oh, wow. By the way, we're talking about Peter Flux on Twitter. Um, he's a co-founder of Flux Markets. Very successful. They've had VC race. They're deploying on near and they're just expanding to Solana now. So anyway, I look up Peter and I'm like, wow, this person know what they're doing. They have a very impressive project. I'm really excited to have this conversation to see what the opportunities are. Like I knew that their team was hiring and I don't want to shit on Peter, but he forgot about the meeting. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I, they're super busy too because some of them are core contributors at Pulse. And then working with uh, Flux and they just raised, I think it's like $10.3 million, which by the way is a lot of money. I'm pretty sure when um, near raised, I think their initial raise was around 12. And so it's really a big project and they have a big, I guess, they have a really unique opportunity. And yeah, I, I know that they're busy and, and he did reach out to me and we tried to reschedule. Um, In the end, it didn't work out. We were both busy. But it's interesting that he actually reached out to me almost at the same time, like one or two days apart from Ozymandias, who I did also meet with. They sent almost an identical message. Both of them said, what is your day job? And they were both sort of exploring opportunities to see how I could get more involved. It didn't work out with Peter, but I I did a start at the Silicon Craftsman Guild, which is what I'm doing now and has been quite successful. And I guess a follow on that has been this podcast. So it's really quite interesting how things always work out for the best. It's just about having that, you know, abundance mindset and and hustling mentality and and keeping at it. Now, just really briefly, I want to have like a rapid fire questions because I am on your website. Wait, Um, uh, which one? Steak? Both, both. I am on the one on your Twitter profile that has a bunch of weird emojis. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm on your yacht. So yacht is pretty cool. I love how you've really infused personality here. You've got a link to your personal site, which I also have open in a separate tab. We've got a link to Pulse Market, which is your current job, the prediction market that acquired stake.gg, which is also listed here. And there is printbase.io, the easiest way to turn your NFTs into physical media. Go from print to mint in just a few clicks. Would you like to tell me more about Printbase? Because it is the first time that I learned from it and it sounds really interesting. Yeah, so that's a secret or I guess not so secret project I've been working on this side, just like in my free time. And no, no, it's totally okay. I mean, I put it on my yet. It's definitely public and I've just... It's more of, it's just like this side project. So basically I built this app that would allow you to connect your near wallet or really hopefully any wallet. And basically what it do is it'll show your NFTs. 
you can then click one and then basically print it on all sorts of things. And we're still in the brainstorming phase. I built out like the whole product, right? So you can actually like buy, purchase through FTX pay and things like that. And there's other things we could do, like maybe payments through near i've looked into that it might be a little bit difficult for me from the technical side but we're definitely looking at if i understand the user logs in with their near wallet so the nft must be in their near wallet that the person logs in with and then they basically just go through a checkout system to where they can actually select a type of print i've actually we I used to work at a print shop like in high school and college and they print on basically anything like from t-shirts to metal prints and things like this. They have this large printer and it's about, I think it's 91 inches long, like the actual print surface. And so really, I think that it's one thing to have a picture of your NFT like in a wallet somewhere. But it's a bummer to have to just like open that wallet to see it, or like maybe you can put it as your Twitter profile, or whatever. But if you if you actually look at something like Paraz, there's a lot of these NFTs that aren't even really profile picture based, beautiful artworks by people. And so I'm thinking, what if like how cool would it be if you had a 60 inch canvas print on your wall right behind you of like your favorite NFT that you own from Paraz? I think that that would be really cool. You already see this happening with digital picture frames. Now, digital picture frames are really cool and they have a lot of benefits. For example, there are some which allow you to create a slideshow of all your NFTs. But at the same time, I think that there's always going to be this, I guess, old world nostalgia, no matter what, for a physical canvas print or even a physical metal print. And you already see like a lot of people on, you'll see like on crypto Twitter, you'll see people who have done this themselves or maybe they hire artists so the idea is to allow people to bring their nfts into the physical world and we're actually thinking about other things like maybe we partner with a project that releases nfts and then in order to actually have a physical print sent to your home you actually have to burn that nft so now your nft actually turns into something physical and I guess the whole wallet aspect, you can just go to any print uh, service website, just upload a photo, have it printed, sent to you. But there's nothing really special about that. And I think that there's something that would be special about like burning NFTs. And again, we're still exploring it. And I think that it's a really niche market, but I think it's just something personally, like I have some metal prints of my Degen Apes, which are like a Solana based NFT. They're in my room right now and I love them. So every day when I wake up, I see them on my wall. So... I think that would be a really cool thing to do. And in terms of my personal website, it's not complete yet, but... I noticed. My blog isn't up yet, but... Exactly. That is what I was looking for. I was like, I would love to read his movie list and his reviews. And I clicked everywhere and it's not there. You know how you said you were, you could sometimes be like pessimistic or whatever. Yeah. I'm like the biggest one you'll ever meet in your life. That's why like movies, restaurants, things like that. It's really hard for me to even say that a single one of them, because (laughs) that's, I always find problems and things. I think that's like a good thing and a bad thing, probably more of a bad thing than a good thing, but I hope to have my movie list up soon. I love movies more than anything. Maybe one day I can become a movie producer or something. Maybe after crypto or during crypto, even a crypto movie, that might be interesting. It's very early in the NFT space, but I think that we will definitely move past 
what I would call the early days of profile picture projects, which by the way, right. I've got a major alpha leak. It won't be new by the time this airs and we can take this out, but there is a profile picture project coming to near and it is coming with full steam. Would you like to hear more about it? I would love to. I, I love anything NFTs. To, to be honest, I've been diving in crazy on Solana NFTs. In fact, you might want to cut this out, but probably about 80 to 90% of my personal portfolio holdings in crypto are actually tied up into NFTs. <laughs> and Peter's like, Ethan, wow. stop. And so NFTs are super, super lucrative. But at the same time, I think part of the reason that the NFTs I bought were super lucrative is because Solana is early. So everyone wants to jump on the early projects. A few things that you've hinted out there. The first one uh, was actually earlier in the conversation and I think would be my main focus was around NFT projects. And you mentioned CryptoPunks in particular, giving you that sense of community and that sense of belonging. But you've also mentioned that NFTs can be very lucrative and there is definitely a lot of money on NFTs right now. And what is most interesting, which I also would like to double click on, is how the NFT trend overlaps with the blockchain trend and the L1 trend. Because I think that at the moment, Ethereum, they've hit the, the speed limit. The throughput is not there. Every time it tries to go past, it gets too expensive. So now all this excess capacity that is trying to find a home, because innovation is not going to stop, money is not going to stop, it's trying to find new uh, options. We've seen Matic grow a lot. Now there's a lot of hope for other Ethereum-based L2s. But we've also seen other layer ones, such as Solana, take off in a dramatic way. But even near Phantom, Cello, or Cello, whatever you say it, I think that they're experiencing <laughs> some good growth and momentum. So I think that your analysis that people wanting to jump on the next big thing before it becomes the next big thing is quite a big driver, in which case a profile picture project, even though they may be a little bit overdone, they may actually be a really good play on near. Is that kind of what your perception is? Is that, a, is that an accurate summary? Yeah, so... The, what's really interesting about Near is that some of its best use cases right now are these NFTs because, for example, like you can easily buy and sell an NFT for nothing. Even if you take in like the 4% fee, you're still never going to pay more than you would on Ethereum for doing the same thing. And I won't get into the whole Ethereum debate, but at this point, Ethereum is just completely, completely useless for NFTs. People will tell you that it's not, but the only way that they are useful is that if they do these weird centralized pre-sale white listings and things like that like for example i tried to mint some ethereum nfts the other day and what happened was they basically at the last minute changed it to say okay look the gas war is going to be too bad you're going to end up spending one ethereum to mint a 200 nft so what we're going to do is you're going to go to our website we're going to have a centralized database we're going to have you click uh, register and fill out this puzzle which by the way the puzzle was poorly worded and with near what's really interesting is like you have platforms like Mintbase and Peraz and they offer I, I love Peraz. I think the DAC digital art card is super interesting. Now of course it's limiting, but it's still super, super interesting and I love it. I think that the profile picture phenomena, we haven't really had it in near. We haven't had it yet. You have crypt you have the near punks. Near punks are great. I own, I own several. I love them. 
Right, yeah. I, I own several as well, and I also love them. But I think what I was trying to get at, uh, I was like actually in one of the near Telegram chats, is that we haven't really had a mint. And what I mean by that is like a mint drop, where you have maybe 5,000 generative, randomly generated profile picture NFTs that are dropped. And what's really cool about those is it's one thing to sell an NFT directly, list an NFT, and then make a first come, first serve. And it's a whole nother thing to open... And maybe this is the best analogy. It's a good analogy, but maybe it's not the like best analogy for more reasons. But it's kind of like a loot box in a game. We can talk about how bad they are, but people love them. I play League of Legends, and I've opened loot boxes to try to get a new skin. And there's something that's really fun and interesting about opening up. Like, for example, my D-Gen apes, maybe they're not the first ones that I would have bought but I minted them and they're mine and I have this sentimental value for that mint. And every time I look at them, I just think about the day that I clicked mint and I, I waited and then all of a sudden this really cool image appeared. And I think that would be really cool to see on Nier. Um, I think that I've mentioned that I think the Nier cats would be really cool because you can actually see on the Nier website how they have different designs. Some of them have scarves and some of them have glasses I think that would be really cool. And I'm really interested to see a true profile picture centric limited supply NFT on near. And I think that well, it, it, it would be a you. great play. I've got it for you. Would you like to hear all the details? Yes, I would love. I will start by prefacing that I would potentially like to get you involved, maybe as an advisor or whatever way you think you may be able to help us, depending on your availability. Because I think that yeah, you would bring some interesting insights, not only the NFT market as a whole, but also from Solana. That I've always said that Solana is a few months ahead from near. So this project started off in March, give or take. It's a friend of mine, Ollie, up in Sydney. He's actually the first guest on this podcast. And his vision was creating people's avatar as they're going to the metaverse. So at the time, it wasn't really about avatars on social media or profile pictures. It was more about your digital being as you go into games and I guess the promise of everything that is to come on near. In particular, his vision was around having customizable or interchangeable avatars. So we came up with a really cool like system whereby we merged NFTs and DeFi and I guess gaming in a way that you could buy like a standard character. We had to simplify things just to um, get going. So at the moment, we have 1,927 really sick avatars. Uh, they were made by a studio in Sydney, and they're the dopest looking thing you'll ever see. At the moment, we're working with the Human Guild. We're coordinating with the Near Foundation to have the drop happening during NearCon. There's going to be coordination with all the channels on Twitter, etc. Uh, we're just tying up the brand and the story now to start activating these channels. But the story as we have it now, they're going to be called Near Misfits, the first fleet of the metaverse. So this select cohort of only 1,927 avatars is meant to represent those first few explorers and people diving deep into the metaverse and building it out and testing what is possible. There's some funny elements to it. One of the lines is, initially, there were 10,000. 
but only nine, <laughs> but only 1900 made it. And yeah, it's pretty cool. We are partnering with the Codemy guys and Jordan. So they're basically building a platform that is going to allow you to do these kind of drops out of the box. So you provide the artwork or the components for the artwork and they do the, the minting and the selling. So we should be testing that by the end of this week or early next week. The cool thing is that this platform is going to be available for any other NFT project, uh, PFP project. So we're likely to see a tsunami of those on near as well. We're happy and hoping to be first. But yeah, that's what we have at the moment. Do you have any thoughts, any questions, any ideas? Yes, the only question is, like, I actually had this question because I was actually going to, I'm actually in the process of making a Twitter header because Twitter headers are, they have profile pictures, but what if, like, maybe you just want to show your face? Because some people want to just show their face or maybe they have another profile picture they like more. So I'm actually making these random generated Twitter headers. They kind of look like oil paintings are pretty cool, if I do say so myself. My question is, I guess, were they like randomly generated or are, are they like more like custom made or or like a mixture of both? Because some projects actually do that. Like they have some that are like custom made that they put into the mint. And then there are others that are like randomly generated on chain, like when you call the contract. And then some people randomly generate them before they put them in the mint. So I don't know if this is like a technical question, but they're randomly generated or they, they just make them uh, without randomly generating them. It was both. So the process involved them making a bunch of components, then randomly generating in a decentralized way, you know, at the studio and then selecting the better looking ones, or I guess like the more unique ones. And that's how we came up with the 1,127. Cool. So we would be one step removed. They're all going to be put into a bucket and they're going to be randomly allocated as you mint, but the art itself has already been created. So it still has a loot box component. You don't know what you're getting. And there are four uh, tiers of rarity, including the glitch ones, which are insane. And they're very, very rare. There's only Did you say uh, glitch, like glitch art? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually a big fan of that. You've probably seen that on my, on my poll. Like, the These pulse. ones are going to go for tens of thousands. And we're working on the story and the narrative for that. It's like, yeah, look, they were 10,000. <laughs> Only 1,900 made it. The glitch ones were like <laughs> barely made it. They're like halfway through. They got stuck or something. I'll send you this like, Ethereum NFT. Highly contemplated on liquidating my whole position to buy it. When you got to understand that before... I would have never thought, I can't afford this NFT. I just can't, right? I would have never even thought about putting $1,000 into an NFT, much less 10. But I just love him so much. And like, it's just so, just like cute, interesting, creative that I don't even want to make it because I I'll buy it because I want it. I think it's going to be rare. I, I want to buy it because it represents me and that's kind of what happened with Aurori. i could have maybe bought one that was more expensive and more rare but i didn't i bought one that i was like okay this kind of represents me as a person and i would like for this to people to see this on say like twitter or social media or something and then be able to draw parallels so i think that it's going to be really interesting to see how the mint goes the latest alpha is Right now, or a little bit over time, but today I'll be, so basically the input from the human guild was, we really want to make sure that this project becomes the board apes of Nier. 
And this is not just, as I said, the financial aspect is the least concern for us. The core focus for us as a team is in building the community. So we want to make sure that this is widely distributed and accessible and awareness in the community. So the suggestion from the Human Guild, I think, is actually brilliant. They recommended that we make a list of all the communities in near, like near Russia and near Hispano and near Arabic and all the guilds, all the different, whatever, NFT collectives, whichever way people are currently organizing and contributing and, and collaborating. And then for us to basically come up with a simple strategy to engage them all, uh, maybe target or I guess a, a partner with their community leader, their moderators, and ideally have a, like an allocation to them, two or three avatars to be given away in some sort of contest. So what we're what, what I'm working on now, uh, like right now, is on that list and then working out the allocation, probably based on how active they are, how many members, uh, the overlap between that community and other communities, etc. And I'm going to put forward a budget for the near marketing uh, whatever one of the many DAOs, for them to essentially pre-purchase these avatars. We obviously recognize it both for the team, but also for the market value of the avatars. It just wouldn't be fair to pre-allocate and give them away for free. So we're just going to put them through as marketing expense. And yeah, they're going to be paid for by the Near Foundation and then distributed to these communities. Out of 1,900-ish, I think... Our maximum cap is 200, and it's looking more like one or 150. But this is still... yeah. Most projects do around like 50. Like I know some projects, like Degen Apes, they actually set aside 50 for a giveaway, but I don't think they gave all away. And so really, there was only 9,950 minted, and then they also saved those for like custom ones. So for example, what they did was uh, for Anatoly or they and like a couple of other people they actually made custom ones for them that were like more honorary, but they actually were later on minted and have added to the official like collection. So like maybe you guys do one for, maybe there's one for Eric, right? That's like more honorary to give away. And so what happens is like, this is like a marketing thing that they all do. They make one, a special one for Eric. And then Eric has, or earlier, they have a large following. So then like it's all like a marketing thing and yeah i think get, definitely like giving some away is a good idea just not too many 200 in my opinion might be a little too much but what is the i'm just trying to understand where the lines cross between it being a good marketing move and it being counterproductive or perceived negatively actually there's a good there's a good case for this Dejan apes actually minted one or created a custom one for this guy austin his name is like austin.soul he's like someone who's big in eth community i think he's he works at uh, audius and they made this custom one pretty cool and his plan was actually to sell it and give the proceeds to charity later on but what happened was Degen Apes, this is a huge story. You could talk about this for an hour, but long story short, they screwed up their initial mint to where 400 or so, or maybe 500 or so apes were minted before the whole contract broke. So they actually canceled that mint. So I actually have one of these apes that isn't official ape, but it's official, so to speak. It's hard to explain. After this happened, they said, yeah, we're going to, we're going to, 
announce like a new mint time within 24 to 48 hours and less than 12 hours later they went to twitter and said hey guys like we have a mint in two hours (laughs) which is like terrible because it was like 2 a.m in europe at the time and so a lot of people were mad because like they told them that they're gonna get a new mint date between 24 and 48 hours but in reality they just said 12 hours later that there's going to be a mint in two hours like a two-hour notice is really bad so austin actually messaged one of the founders or maybe one of the founders messaged austin was like hey can you uh can you come in this twitter space we'd love to have you here to help boost the awareness of the project and austin said no i'm out I don't agree with doing a two, like basically telling people two hours before the mint that is going to happen. And then because of this, there was like a whole controversy on Twitter yesterday where Austin basically asked for his ape. He's like, hey guys, you're going to mint it. And then the DGens were like, no, you turned your back on us. And so there's definitely things that can go wrong. Yeah. And And also, yeah, I also agree that it could be counterproductive. Actually, I made a post that I don't agree with these custom apes because there are a lot of people who miss the mint or weren't able to get the mint because it sells out in 20 seconds and they just got unlucky. But then there's just famous people who get their mints. Yeah, and I guess to clarify, the apes that would be allocated, (laughs) the apes, listen to me, the the avatar (laughs) that would be allocated to the community are literal to the community. We don't really have any custom ones. We do have a strategy in mind to get, obviously, Eric and Yili and whatnot to change your avatars, build that momentum, but they would be buying like from the same pool. And even the avatars are being bought by the foundation. It's not like a giveaway giveaway, if, if that makes any difference. But look, as I said, I'd love to add you to our conversations, to our chats, because I think that you can bring a lot of insight and none of this has been inked and finalized yet so yeah if you're interested I'm more than happy to have you yeah definitely i would love to give my insights because i've in the past 30 days 35 days i've minted ooh, probably six or seven projects some have some horror stories about let me tell you and then there are others that just went really great and really smooth and i think that i have a pretty decent idea of what not to do and what to do when it comes to like marketing and like post mint the hours after the mint and things like that i can definitely share some insights of what you should do what you should not do and this is from like personal experience and like seeing like communities either succeed or just straight up just die like on the spot yeah i would would love to join in conversation that you guys have awesome sounds good We've been going for two hours and 14 minutes, which means the editing is going to be absolutely hideous for me. <laughs> now, I just got a rapid fire question. And when I say rapid yep. fire, I know that I'm terrible at enforcement, but let's definitely try to stick to it. Yep. Your personal website, ethanchazon.com, looks amazing. For people that are not able to see it right now, I would highly recommend you go check it out. It is retro. The The background, it's like a like an old school like wallpaper um, yeah and then, and then the logos are like a very old computer like pixelated very squarey logos how did you build it and get one like this <laughs> yeah actually this is inspired by something called paradise at fm and so i've always liked like the old computers because i 
was never around for it, but sometimes you have nostalgia for a time that you weren't around for. And basically, it's actually really simple. It only took me the hardest part, actually, believe it or not, I spent more time sourcing those icons than I did actually building the site. If anyone wants to know, I use something called Svelte. A lot of people use like React or Vue. I use something called Svelte, which is like really simple. Oh yeah, spelled uh, S-V-E-L-T-E. It was actually developed by a graphic... I don't know if he's a graphic designer or one of the big graphic guys of the New York Times. And what it was basically supposed to be is like take a lot of the like more difficult things to understand about React and just simplify it. And, and it's really easy to work with. And I've actually built Stake with Svelte. In fact, the Stake homepage is built with Svelte. The initial app, like the V1 app was built in Svelte. Really, the site isn't perfect, but yeah, it, was, it didn't take me too long. It's pretty good. I, I built... mean, it is visually appealing. It conveys a message, which leads to my next question. You are currently working on WeatherDex, a first-of-its-kind decentralized derivatives exchange for the weather market. Yeah, so that's uh, <laughs> in, yeah, so that's in a few uh, sentences. What is that? How does it work? What is the reasoning? Basically, it would allow for decentralized weather insurance. In 2016, my house flooded about 14 inches because I live in Louisiana and we're like basically underwater. And I know firsthand how... I guess, ridiculous the insurance agencies can be, how long it takes you to get your uh, money after your house was destroyed, even though you pay them on time every month. And there's actually a bunch of other reasons for it. So for example, like someone in the Philippines, if they have crops and it floods, they lose it all. So maybe you can give someone like that who might not have access to insurance and might not have access to banking a way to easily basically hedge their bets. And I know weather derivatives are very, very niche, but it's also like a multi-billion dollar market. There are people all over the world, a bunch of firms that invest in weather. In fact, I know someone who's one of his best friends is a ethanol trader. He trades specifically ethanol and he doesn't really look at financial charts as much as he does weather because weather will actually affect the growth of products used in ethanol and like in its production. And yeah, that's actually something on the back burner. Believe it or not, I actually started it about the same time as steak, but weather decks is very, again, it's niche and it takes a lot of education and it's more something maybe geared towards institutional traders who want to start getting into decentralized weather insurance and weather predictions. It's basically just a prediction market like Pulse. In fact, Pulse could allow for weather prediction markets, but it was supposed to be more tailored towards the weather. So you can make a bet, will uh, it rain 17 inches in Louisiana? And you can maybe put X number of dollars and then someone can say, oh, like by that date, I don't think it's going to rain that much. And they underwrite what is essentially a decentralized weather contract. Um, And then we use an Oracle to resolve that data. So you don't have to actually have an auditor go to that person's home and say, yes, it did flood. And it's a really interesting business and no one really talks about it, but, you know. Hopefully they will after this podcast. I'm really happy (laughs) that I asked because when I look at weather decks and I did assume that it was kind of like a side project, I thought it was like a lot less serious, but you are definitely tapping into a huge market that hadn't given it much thought myself. I guess I've been really lucky in the regions that I live in and the weather not being too extreme. But yeah, looking right. forward to see if that if you're able to follow that up. Now, next questions. I see that you enjoy Hong Kong and martial arts uh, films. 
Your favorite ones are Police Story and Taipei Story. And some of your favorite sci-fi films are Back to the Future and Total Recall. Do you think, and we're pretty bad at doing this rapid fire, so <laughs> let's see how we go. Do you think that you can identify maybe like a thread in common or what is it that attracts you from those movies? Anything inspiring? I don't know. It triggers your imagination. It resembles something from the real world that you like. What is it about that genre, which I'm not familiar with personally myself? It really depends when you talk about, for example, like Hong Kong martial arts films. I just think that they're interesting. I just think that they're fun. I think that like <laughs> it's when you go to approach like a producer and you say, hey, I have this movie starring Jackie Chan about a drunk habitual alcoholic martial arts fighter they're like most people would just laugh at that but it's like one of the funniest movies i've ever seen and then when you then on a more serious note you look at something like total recall and it's like more i guess serious and it has more esoteric meaning to it that you can actually apply to your everyday life so i guess it really depends i think back to the future specifically it's really interesting because it, it there's so much to it. In fact, I'm pretty sure there's a school in Tampa that like teaches it as like one of the best scripts ever written. And so oh. I I don't know really what if there's like necessarily a common theme throughout them, but I just really like things, whether it's the writing or the cinematography. And like something like Taipei Story is like super deep and actually does have a deeper meaning about how like how the world was changing but then sometimes people don't want it to change or they're not like ready for it to change and the divergent or i guess the convergence of the west and the east and stuff so there's definitely a lot to movies movies are fun because sometimes you can watch them like multiple times and you pick up new things for example back to the future is like one of those movies where i can watch all three of them every single day and really not get tired of it and i have watched them a lot <laughs> That's awesome. No, I I also have a thing for time traveling movies. I haven't seen Back to the Future in a while, but yeah, Butterfly Effect, Inception, X Men. Butterfly Effect is good. <laughs> oh, I I just love that concept of yeah the metaverse. I guess it all I think it's because everyone with. wants to do it. Everyone wants to time travel, and they know that they'll never be able to do it. And so there's something intriguing about. There's many levels to it, and like that when you mention what attracts you to the movie, you mentioned the script or the cinematography. It's more like the artistic side, because the thing that I always I'm really good at overthinking things. So I like the movies that allow you to create that environment where you can explore different topics so in everyday conversation it's technically a waste of time to discuss time traveling because we can't do it but <laughs> i do love engaging with those thoughts and possibilities and the movie is just a perfect example and you're not even you know spending your time discussing with someone that they may be boring or they may be aggressive you're literally immersed into this like world that they have crafted for you and yeah when done it's very powerful now i do have to say I have a habit of reading the book before the movie, and uh, the book is always better. In fact, a few books <laughs> yeah, have ruined the movie that. for me. <laughs> yeah, I've never really watched a movie where there was a book. Actually, The Giver, that's the only movie I've watched after reading a book, but it was like school. We're forced to read it. And yeah, I've heard that same thing Like for Harry Potter. Everyone says that the books are better than the movies. To me, it's hard to say because it's hard to beat some of the great CGI. <laughs> Sometimes you imagine it, like for me, it might be a little bit hard to um, imagine 
a world that's more constructed and more interesting than what maybe, someone like maybe when we have like virtual reality because when you read the book you are literally the character like you are in the character's head right. and through their eyes and i i just don't see how the movies can do that like books give you mind reading powers like they've done studies that they, they scan people's brains. You feel the emotions of the character. Like it's very weird. As ancient a tool as it may be, it is actually very advanced in enabling us to live someone else's life. I, I love cinema. I love music. I just think that they're very different mediums and both should be given mm. credit. And it gets awkward when you have the same, I guess, like storyline in both mediums. Having said that, I am reading Dune now. The movie release in Australia isn't till December. So that's probably going to be my latest disappointment. But it's an excellent book, actually. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. That's a really interesting point you made about like movies and books, about how like you really get inside their head. Because you're really, when you read a book, you're reading someone else's thoughts. And when you watch a movie, you're watching i guess sometimes usually a teams i guess like you're watching the director you're watching the editor you're watching the sound guy you're watching the cgi and all this stuff and it's sometimes it's harder to make a movie really good when you have a bunch of people working on it versus like someone who's putting down their own original thoughts in a book and laying it out exactly how they want it to be laid out and yeah i think it's an interesting point maybe i'll maybe i'll start to read more books before watching the movie and see if I feel the same way. If anything at all, just trying to read more. You find a story, maybe let's keep it non-controversial, maybe one that doesn't have it, but it's really good. I'll give you an example. Andrew's Game is an excellent book and it's got... Uh, the movie is okay. I, I actually didn't mind the movie too much. There's uh, It's a trilogy and the two following books do not have a movie to them. So I actually like those That's a good books. good point. Huh? That's a good point. Yeah, like you get more. It's like a little gem. It's you. You got the starter. You've seen the movie, but only if you read the book, you get the the next one. And to be fair, like it, it's not like a the the, the story is like sixty thousand years apart or something. But it's the same character anyway. Ethan, it's been a pleasure to want to have hours, and I have yeah a few other things to attend to today. Thanks so much for your time and your generosity. I don't know why. You said that you're not a good public speaker. I think that we've had a very good conversation. A lot of gems in there. Yeah, I appreciate you hosting the podcast. And I think maybe it's because there wasn't an audience staring at me and I wasn't on camera that I was able to maybe put my thoughts down a little bit easier. But yeah, I really appreciate it. So about meeting the user where they are. I could have been like, no, turn that camera on. I want to see your face. <laughs> How do I know you're not a dog hiding behind a screen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm actually an ai yeah you right. just don't know it <laughs> in my in my mind's eye you will forever be an ape wearing a <laughs> a sailor t-shirt awesome it's been a pleasure if you want if it makes you more comfortable or whatever um, i'm happy to share a final version of the edit before it is released in case you want to make any extra edits we can still take things out no, that that's okay. You can just post whatever. Like, um, I never want to listen to this again. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I might not listen to it. I don't really like hearing myself talk, but well, I, I'll normal. try. I'll try. As I edit this, I'm like, I may be psychopathic to start with, but if I wasn't listening <laughs> to this, it's definitely going to make me because it is not normal to listen to yourself over and over again. 
Actually, Peter said something about that one time. He told me we're not used to humans have never sat in front of his TV screen and try to talk to each other through a screen. He says it's not just not how our brain works. We're not programmed for it. And I think that kind of holds true here. We're not really used to recording our voice. So it's not been around for that long. And we're still getting used to it as humans, like how to communicate without being face to face, seeing each other and seeing that emotional expression. He made a really good point. And, uh, so I, it made me feel a little bit better about it. Everyone can probably get nervous talking through a, through a screen, through a microphone. Yeah, one step at a time. You are well suited for the metaverse and we'll get you a nice modern near misfits avatar. <laughs> Ethan, let's get in touch. That's the end. Once again, thanks so much for listening to the Wild User Interviews. We love you and we love your feedback and your thoughts. So please tweet at us at WePod. That's W-U-I-P-O-D on Twitter. And in case you forgot, this podcast is brought to you by Metapool. Seriously, guys, if you're not staking on Metapool, what are you doing? Thank you. Enjoy.